presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our seventh in our series on what it means to be saved by grace. And we've used uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 as our key passage in talking about this. And that's the first passage that's in the little box at the top of your notes. If you don't have some notes, there's still some there in the back. So we might just read that. And this is from the uh, New International Version where Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. And we said that that word workmanship is the word poema. We get our word poem from it. We are God's masterpiece. That is, believers are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And today we're going to be talking about the topic of sanctification. We've said that uh, we've used the, the passage, I think probably extensively, that Paul wrote in Romans 8, verses uh, 28 through 30, where he talked about, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then, and then Paul begins to talk about that. He says, whom he predestined, the, I'm sorry, whom he foreknew, these also he predestined. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And basically what we've seen in that passage is a chain of five links made up of God's foreknowledge and God's, uh, God's predestination. And of course, those things took, uh, took place in eternity. And we've, we've talked about the whole concept of divine election, that it's unconditional. It's not that God looked down the corridors of time to see what our response would be to the gospel. Uh, that would be conditional election. That would put the emphasis on us. Rather, God, in his grace and mercy, determined that he would save certain individuals. We we've saw that the word know and foreknow has the idea of intimacy, just as Adam in the Garden of Eden knew his wife, and the result was what? Offspring. Intimacy. That God foreknew us, that he was intimate with us before the world began, and he predestined us. Foreknowledge has to do with persons, Predestination has to do with purpose. What was God's purpose in knowing us? It was to make us into, ultimately into the image of his son. Uh, and then in time, God calls us to himself. We saw that basically the New Testament teaches that there are two kinds of calling. There's a general call of the gospel. In fact, that's the responsibility of all of us as Christians. We're to go out and we're to preach the gospel. To everyone but the problem is there's no response to that gospel because of the hardness of the human condition uh, the Bible says we are dead in trespasses and since we're not sick it's not like throwing out a life preserver and you grab the life preserver it's not like taking medicine off the table that Jesus has prescribed and you take the medicine 
because the the belie- the, uh, the non-believer, the person who doesn't know Christ, is not sick. The person who doesn't know Christ is not drowning. That person is already drowned. He's on the bottom of the ocean, and his guts have been eaten out by sharks. He is dead in transgressions, dead in trespasses and sins. And so what God does is through the effectual call of the gospel, whereby his Holy Spirit uh, brings life. We said part of what this is all about, and I'm trying to summarize this rather hurriedly so we can get into our subject. God brings, uh, brings the, uh, those whom he has chosen for himself to life. He brings them to life. That's the primary need that all people have. If we are dead in trespasses and sins, then we're non-responsive to the gospel. We're non-responsive spiritually. There are none who seek after God. There are none who understand. They've all gone out of the way, the scriptures say. And so our primary need is that of regeneration. And when God regenerates us, we discovered that he grants to us faith and repentance, both of which are gifts of God. And we express faith in Christ we express repentance, which means to change our minds. And remember, before we come to Christ, the Bible says, what of our minds? That they are hostile toward God. They do not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. We change our mind. God grants us faith and repentance. And as we express the faith that God has given us, both these are gifts from God. As we express this faith toward Christ, then what God does is he justifies us. Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures say. And we discovered, among other things, that what God does is he adopts us into his family. That is, we are given the status as grown children that God agrees to attach his name, his inheritance, to the likes of us. Ultimately, Paul says, the last link in the chain is that of glorification. He says that whom he justified, he also glorified. And Paul uses the past tense in the mind of God. And of course, whereas this, the calling and the justification takes place in terms of time and space, glorification again takes place in eternity. This is when we are with Christ and we are finally and fully made into the very image of the Lord Jesus himself. Doesn't mean we'll all be 33 and have beards, but it does mean that God will have finished his work in us and the character qualities of Christ will be ours in their fullness in uh, in this glorified resurrection, in, in the glorified body. Now, our subject today is sanctification, the missing link. And we look at this and we say, well, okay, well, Paul in Romans 8 has given us five links in a chain. And we see how they extend throughout all eternity. They take a little dipsy doodle through time and space where we exist. And we see how God uh, changes us, how he brings us to himself. Well, where is sanctification in all this? Why didn't Paul specifically use that word? Where is it in there? And what we discover is that Paul indeed did mention it because what he said is he said, 
he has predestined us to what? To conformity. Conformity to what? Yeah, to Christ's image. That's right. So what does that mean? That means God is going to change us. God is going to make us different in some way. And so here what we see, and this is really even more than an inference, Paul is saying that the sanctifying process really begins over here in eternity where God determines what he's going to do. And we're going to see some verses that substantiate this in a minute. And it goes throughout time and it ultimately finds its completion in eternity when we are with Christ once again. What we're going to discover is that there are really three tenses to the whole uh, subject of sanctification. There's a present tense, there's a past tense, and there's a future tense. And that's what we want to talk about here today. Uh, notice in your outline under Roman numeral number two as we just think in terms of an overview of sanctification. And incidentally, we're going to talk about this more next, uh, next week as well because I think it's a really important subject. In defining sanctification, the word uh, also is translated in the Bible not only sanctification or sanctify, but also in terms of the word holiness. They mean exactly the same thing. And sanctification really has one, or holiness has one and one, only one meaning. And what is that? To set apart. That's right. To set apart. Now, it's fascinating when, when we think in, when you hear the word holiness, you know, we hear about the holiness churches and we hear about the sanctified churches of Christ. When you hear the word holiness, what, what kind of Im image pops into your mind right away? I'm sorry? Sinless. Yeah, okay, sinless. Any other images just come to mind? Yeah, Jesus, okay. It's interesting that the term meaning set apart, there are a lot, this, this term holy is applied to a lot of things. For example, it's applied to Aaron in the Old Testament. Who was Aaron? Anybody remember? The first high priest, that's right, in the Old Testament. In fact, who was it that constructed the, uh, the, uh, the golden calf? It was Aaron. You say, well, wait a minute. Here, Aaron is, is set apart to God and he would do something like that? Also, the, uh, the tent of meeting, the old uh, tabernacle, was called, uh, was called holy. In fact, within the context, within the confines of the, uh, the, the tabernacle, which always faced the east, and there's the brazen altar right there, this tent inside these uh, draperies that hung around the compound divided into two parts, and the front part of that was called the holy place, and the back part was called the Holy of Holies. And they had a lot of furniture that they used in all of this, uh, including pots and pans. And they were referred to as holy. Well, why is it they were holy? Well, because they were set apart. For example, if you came in exhausted at night and your uh, significant other uh, thought you were too late because you've been out bowling with the guys or with the gals too late that night and said, I'm telling you what, you are not sleeping in this tent tonight. You know, there may have been another tent somewhere 
where Israel was camped where you could sleep. But I'll tell you, there was a tent where you could not sleep. And that was this tent of meeting right here. Why? Well, it's because it was set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for God. It had a very special purpose. It was a place of worship. There were lots of pots and pans. After, uh, after wandering around in the wilderness for some 38 to 40 years, what do you think would be the condition of these pots and pans that were used day after day after day after day? What would they look like? Yeah, beat up. I mean, yeah, like the rest of us, kind of beat up, you know, dents, bangs, spots where they knocked them back out. You say, well, what makes this pan so holy? And you come in one evening and you just starved and your significant other says, I told you supper would be on the table at 6. It is 8.30. It's too late. The dog got yours. And so you say, well, maybe I can find a neighbor over here and maybe I can get a, a little pan or something and, and get something from the neighbor. Well, there are a lot of pans you could use within the context of the congregation. But there was one set of pots and pans, many of which were very, very banged up. You say, well, why can't he use this pan? After all, the old priest is asleep, and this pan's just kind of laying over here to the side in the compound. Why can't he use this pan? Because that pan had been set apart for a specific use in, in the worship and in the service of God. The word sanctification means to set apart. And when we talk about persons being sanctified, we're talking about the fact that God has set us apart. And what's inferred from that is we're set apart from something and we're set apart to something else. We're set apart from what? From our sin, from our old way of life, and we're set apart to what? Yeah, to righteousness. We're set apart to God. That's what he's talking about right here. Anthony Hokema, who, was a, who died just a few years ago, but a former professor of systematic theology at Calvin uh, College, uh, wrote this, and I, I think it's so great. He defines sanctification this way, and I put it in your notes, that gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which he, God, delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that when we talk about sanctification, that there are three tenses of sanctification. And again, this is in your notes. Notice, first of all, there's a, there's a sense in which sanctification is something that has occurred in the past. We could also use the, uh, uh, the term positional. Uh, if you like, you could even use the term uh, definitive. Something very definite, uh, something that's happened uh, in terms of time and space and, as it were, a completed act. Uh, and I've got a, a reference here from Hebrews 10, from the, this time from the New American Standard. And the writer of Hebrews uh, says here, then he, and the he here refers to the Son, the Lord Jesus, then he said, behold, I have come to do thy God the Father's will. He takes away the first, and the first here refers to the first covenant. He takes away the first in an order to establish the second, the new covenant. By this will, we have been sanctified. What's, what's the tense of that verb? Yes, past. We have been sanctified. It is a completed act. 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what we discover right away is that in one sense, when we talk about sanctification, we could say, if, if you and I are truly believers, we could say, yes, I have been sanctified. When did that happen? That happened at the cross, just as in the case of our justification through faith in Christ's finished work on the cross, that Christ not only justified us, but in another sense as well, he sanctified us also. He set us apart. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And in all of that process, sanctification takes place. Notice also that sanctification has a present or a progressive uh, tense as well. And I think this is probably, and this is where we're going to be focusing most of our time, and particularly next week, we're going to be talking about the, the present aspect or the progressive aspect of sanctification as God is changing us. And again, uh, this time from the New International Version in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, and we, and of course the we refers to whom? To believers. And we who with unveiled faces. Now, the reason he uses that term is he's been talking about Moses. He's been characterizing the experience that Moses had with the experience that we have under the new covenant. He said that Moses had to put a veil over his face. And the reason he put the veil over his face was because, you remember when Moses was there up in Sinai and his face began to kind of glow? You know, Cecil B. DeMille must have been there the way he depicted it in his movie. But the, the point is, is that that glory began to fade. And so there was a veil that Moses put over his face so that the, the, the Israelites would not see the fact that that glory was fading. And Paul is contrasting and he's saying, but in the case of the new covenant, the covenant under which we are, the glory does not fade. We are being transformed and it is becoming more and more and more glorious as time goes by. Now let's read it with that. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed. Now, what verb tense is that? That's a present tense. Are being transformed into his, Jesus, likeness with an ever-increasing glory. It's an ongoing process. And usually, when you and I think of sanctification, we think in terms of the ongoing process. And, and again, that's what we're going to be talking about mostly. The, uh, it's fascinating, this word that uh, in our English language that's uh, translated by the term transformed uh, <clears throat> takes its uh, roots from a, uh, uh, a Greek word from which we get our word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Hard to spell and write at the same time. What's a metamorphosis? Yeah, a change. What, what, what kind, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word metamorphosis? What comes to mind? Butterfly. What, what happens in that metamorphosis? Yeah, yeah, caterpillar. You got this ugly worm that's just crawling around and eating all the leaves off your, off your, uh, what kind of trees are those that we got that the caterpillars love to eat? No, they're not catoptric, but they, they do love, the, they do love those. Uh, the ones that the possums love to climb up, persimmon tree. Man, they will just eat the heck out of a persimmon tree. 
And, you know, they're crawling around doing all this stuff, and then one day you look out there and there's this weird-looking thing kind of hanging down like that. And if you keep watching one day, what happens? Splits open, and then this beautiful creature emerges. Uh, Meta, which means change or... the, uh, the Latin trans is the same thing, to change, to go across. Uh, morphosis from morphe, form, to change form. What's Paul saying? He's saying that we are in the process of changing form. Does this mean we are kind of like shapeshifters? Or, you know, if you're a Trekkie fan, what, is, what does it mean to change form? It means we are being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. See, that goes back to right here. From all eternity, God foreknew his people and he predestined them to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. And then in terms of time and space, God did exactly what he needed to do in order to bring that about. And the result is so sure that he even says in the past tense, whom he justified, he also glorified as well. So there's a a present and a progressive sense, and that's where we're going to focus in a minute. But anyway, back to our tenses. There's also a future tense of sanctification, and that is in terms of one day we will be perfected. Uh, and sometimes I think we have this idea when we hear uh, somebody saying that they've been sanctified, and we say, think, well, man, you've already got your resurrection body now. Well, if you think that, just stick a pen in them and see what happens. Notice what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus. So, again, in terms of our chain here of five unbreakable links. And remember, a a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And in this chain, there are no weak links whatsoever. What we discover is that sanctification also, in, in a sense, can refer to this final link when we are glorified. That's when we are made perfect. When everything is, and the word perfect in the New Testament Uh, has to do with the idea of things being brought to their completion. That's what Paul is talking about right here. Now, just in terms of uh, being sure that we understand the difference between justification, sanctification, and glorification, and all of those are, uh, you know, three dollar and a half theological words, I put a little uh, notation there in your uh, your outline to kind of help you differentiate. Uh, among the three. Uh, Justification simply is that declaration of God in which he declares the believing sinner to be righteous. God, as it were, is the judge. He is sitting at the bench, has his gavel in his hand. We express faith in Christ, the faith that he has given us to express in Christ. God slams down his gavel, and what does he say? He says, you're acquitted. You are not guilty. And he credits all of the righteousness that Christ is to our account and he takes he took all of the sinfulness of his people and he credited that to Christ and that's the reason that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ 
So justification tells us that we have been freed, past tense, from the penalty of sin, from the guilt of sin. We need not fear the fact that we will have to face our sins. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sin is gone. Remember uh, the words, uh, uh, all my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Justified by faith in Christ. Done in the past, taken care, freed from the penalty, from the guilt of sin. And it's a sovereign act of God alone. Again, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Before we came to know Christ, did we have peace with God? No, we were enemies of God. We were at odds with God. And God has brought us to himself. We sometimes uh, hear people say, we go see someone who's on their deathbed, and we say, have you made your peace with God? Let me tell you what, you can't make peace with God. Only God can make peace with you, and he's done that through the blood of the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself is the peacemaker, and then as we come to know him, then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called children of God. Sanctification is a little different from that. We see that, and we're talking about the progressive aspect of that where we as believers are being freed in a, in a continuous, ongoing sense from the pollution of sin. And when I say in your notes there that it's a cooperative venture between God and the believer, I do not mean, and please understand this, that God's got his part and I've got my part and we all work together. No, I'm talking about what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. We can only work out what? What God himself has worked in. That's what he's talking about here. But God's given us the power to do that. What power? The power of the indwelling spirit of God. Uh, that's part of what it means to be a Christian is that, the, that God takes up residence within us through his spirit. Remember what, uh, when they were reconstructing the old temple uh, back in the days of Zerubbabel, they just really were having a time back there. And finally, God raises up uh, Haggai and Zechariah to really encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua, who was the, not the Joshua who fit the battle of Jericho, but this is another Joshua who was the high priest at that time. And the words of Zechariah came in, uh, the word from God through Zechariah came in Zechariah 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but what? But by my spirit. By my spirit, that's all right. By my spirit, says the Lord. God has given us his spirit. And then finally, when we're talking about glorification, we're talking about not having been freed from the guilt or the penalty of sin and not talking so much about being free from the, the power of sin. We're talking about being freed from the very presence of sin. John writes in 1 John 3, Brethren, we don't exactly know what we'll be like, but when we appear, when he appears, talking about the second coming of Christ, we will be like him 
for we shall see him just as he is. So there's a difference between those three things. Notice that in terms of progressive sanctification, that the entire Godhead is involved in this. It's not that just that you know one one part of the Godhead's involved. They're all all persons within the Godhead. Again, that's in your notes. We see that uh, the Father's involved. Pa, uh, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says draws a contrast here, and he's talking about the discipline of God toward His children, and he says. In contrast, our fathers, that is our earthly fathers, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. That's right. Sometimes they did a good job and sometimes they didn't do such a good job, but they did it as they thought best. Our, our moms and dads generally never sat down at the dinner table one, sun, one Sunday evening and said, what do you think we can do to really screw up our children's lives? We don't do that sort of thing. There may be some, but that doesn't happen often. No comments, Sarah. <laughs> our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. To what end? And the writer tells us that we may share in his holiness. How does divine discipline help to transform us? How does the discipline that God brings our way, how does that help to transform us? How does that help to, to change us? Teaches us? <laughs> yes, yeah, some of us don't listen real well. We hear, but we don't, don't listen. Uh, I get accused of that sometimes. Yeah. God, God brings certain things into our lives and the whole purpose, and this is one of the great things about the, the, the concept of the sovereignty of God is that we come to grips with the fact that nothing comes into my life that is not either specifically sent by my loving Heavenly Father or does not first have to filter through His hands. Uh, you remember Jesus... Uh, Right before he went to the cross, Peter was bragging about, yeah, you need to keep your eye on these guys. I've been wondering about these folks, but I'm telling you what, I'm ready to die for you. And, of course, it was Jesus who was going to go and die for Simon Peter. But uh, Jesus said no. He said before the, before, the rooster crows three, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. He said, but I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Peter's hope waned, but his faith never really failed. The discipline that came into his life was such that what happened to Peter? Peter was transformed. All of a sudden you've got this guy who's, you know, every time Peter opened his mouth it was just to change feet. He always had the, seemed to have the, once in a while he'd come up with the right thing, but usually he was always sticking his foot in his mouth about something. But all of a sudden, you see there on the day of Pentecost, as he was filled with God's Spirit, as God endued him with the power of the Spirit, we see a real change in his life, and we see him proclaiming the gospel with boldness. God changes us as he disciplines us. The son's involved, and Paul uses the imagery of the husband-wife relationship to illustrate that. Uh, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. To make her what? Holy. To set her apart. 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And we have lots of wrinkles for what God's doing right now. And sometimes he uses discipline as he's ironing out the wrinkles in us. We see the Holy Spirit's involved. And again, this is a passage from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2, where Peter writes, chosen, and, he, and he's, verse 1 just kind of gives us a litany of, uh, uh, well, not a litany, but a list of names of different places. But the gist is that all these people, all of God's elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Notice this is pre-salvation. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. See, that ties in again with the whole concept that God predestines us. And so many times we, we tend to want to take this predestination and try to build some sort of biblical doctrine on it that the Bible doesn't really build. Predestination uh, refers to the conformity to Christ's image. It's, used, it's also used of Christ on a couple of occasions when it talks about his death on the cross, that it was predestined, but his death on the cross was to what end? In order to bring us to faith that we might be conformed to Christ's image for what greater purpose and the greater purpose is that in order that Christ himself might have the preeminence, that he might be the preeminent one among many brothers and sisters. So we see that sanctification is first and foremost a divine gift. Now one of the things that Hokema said that we looked at a minute ago in his definition that I thought was so good, that sanctification involves the responsible participation of believers. And that's what we want to talk about here for a minute. Part of the means, the, the, the agent for sanctification, we've seen that all of the Godhead is involved in sanctification. The major agent is that of the Holy Spirit. The major means that God uses primarily two means, and the greatest means is that of the scriptures. That's what uh, Hazel was talking about here just a minute ago. And God also uses his people, and we're going to talk about that a great deal in our next session next week about the impact that you and I have on each other and how God uses that impact in order to change us. It's like the old Scottish wag, remember? To dwell above with the saints in love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints, I know. That's another story. And, uh, but God uses his people to change us, and he uses his word to change us. Jesus said in John 17, 17, which is there in your uh, notes, uh, sanctify them, talking about believers, his people, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And when Jesus said your word, what was he talking about? He's talking about the scripture, sure. And of course, inferred in all of this is walking in, uh, in obedience to the, to the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 16 and following, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And notice what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7. Again, I refer you to your notes there where I put that in from the New International Version. And this illustrates the fact that it's not some sort of passive kind of obedience, but it's an active participation in the process. Since we have these promises, dear friends, what promises? All those things that Paul's been writing about. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness. Remember we said that word perfecting means bringing to completion is the idea. Bringing to completion holiness out of reverence for God. Well, what does it mean to actively be participating? Well, sometimes one of the best ways to know what it is is to first know what it's not. And so I put in your notes what sanctification is not. First of all, it is not a method to be mastered. It's not something that you just have to practice at. And just, in other words, it's not a... Martin Luther, I think, is probably a great example of that, who began to uh, order his life in a certain way thinking that the monastic existence where he was just going to spend a certain number of hours a day praying and a certain number of hours a day reading the Bible and a certain number of hours a day confessing his sin in order to somehow gain this holiness, this sanctification. But what was Martin Luther's experience? After he did all that, he was more frustrated than he was before he began all of that. Methods don't accomplish anything in that way. It's also not a formula. Anybody know any formulas for sanctification? How about let go and let God? That's a formula. Does that work? No. God doesn't do for us what he tells us that we are to do. He empowers us to do certain things. Just let Jesus take control of your life. See, that's sort of a simplistic kind of thing. It's, it's the idea, well, now, all you need to do, let, let me give you the five steps to sanctification. When somebody gives you the five steps, you need to get up and leave the room. There aren't five steps to sanctification. It is not, as it were, a formula to be followed, nor is it an experience to be sought. There are a lot of people who talk about the second blessing uh, they may call it. Uh, they may call it being sanctified. I've got some real good uh, uh, sanctified Church of Christ friends uh, who really advocate that. Uh, I've got some really good uh, Pentecostal friends who talk about there's this uh, special experience, the baptism in the Spirit, and all of a sudden your your life where you've just had failure after failure and you've had difficulty after difficulty. You have this experience. And what this experience does is it transforms you and all of a sudden your life is just running over with joy and victory. Oh, I wish it were so. But it's not. And one of the things that that teaching does is it denigrates the cross because it says what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. You need another experience. 
and the subsequent experience will accomplish more for you than the cross accomplished. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, that is a heresy. God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us through his glory. The cross will always go back to the cross right here. Well, how does, how does, how does, how does the scriptures, and we're not going to be able to talk about all of this, and that's okay because part of what we we're going to talk about today I was going to go into in more detail in our next session anyway. How is, what is the relationship of the Word of God to sanctification? It's, it's, not, it's a means, but it's, it's not the, an easy step. It's not uh, some sort of methodology. See, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness to what end? so that the man or the woman or the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I put in your notes there five activities that are related to the scriptures. Hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating. Now, give me an illustration of hearing the scriptures. Yeah, a sermon. Coming to Tuesday Bible class. That's right. That's an, there's a... There's an illustration. There's an example of here. What's an example of reading the scriptures? Now, this is not hard. These are not hard questions. Yeah, yeah. You have your quiet time or whatever it is that you, that you do sometimes in the morning or at night. Studying the scripture. What's an example of that? Yeah, a Bible study uh, where you do some sort of perhaps an inductive kind of Bible study. You really sort of dig it out. All of these things. And then memorizing Ooh, now we don't like that word, but uh, you know one of the great things about memorizing is uh, if you really memorize, uh, how much of what you've memorized do you remember? Yeah, a hundred percent of. And incidentally, if you're interested in doing that, there are three rules to memorize things. The first rule is review. The second rule is review, and the third rule is review. The only way to remember it is to review it. And if you are uh, if you're a person who likes to walk or run. Great thing to do sometimes is uh, is uh, write out some Bible verses, and as you're running around, you you got you don't have enough wind to talk to somebody, but you can you can kind of go over your verses. It's amazing how much of that stuff you can store up. But there's another thing, and it and if you look at those five things, they're kind of like fingers on your hand. You could you could say, you know, hearing and reading and studying and meditating. But the thumb, the thing, the thing that really makes it work is that of meditation. And the, the word meditation is an interesting word, particularly in the Old Testament. Remember in the Psalms, uh, David talks a lot about meditating on the scriptures. And the idea of meditation is kind of like a cow chewing a cud. Now, we used to have some cows, and it, it was great when we first had them. It was even better when we sold the last one. That was during a time of a drought. <clears throat> Hay got real expensive. But, but you know, you uh, these cows, they're kind of nonchalant, and they'll chew up a few things. You look out there in a hot afternoon, you know, and they'll be laying up under some oak tree somewhere, just kind of cooling it, and all of a sudden they'll kind of, mm, mm, and the next thing you know, they're chewing on something. So what is that? What are they doing? They're chewing their cud. They're meditating. What they've taken in before, they're going over again and again and again. And that's what we do. We, we hear, 
hear the sermon on Sunday morning. We, we read the scriptures in our quiet time. We're studying on Tuesday night. We're digging something out of some, for some Bible study. We're meditating. We're really thinking about these three verses and how they apply to, to uh, how these verses really apply to me. And we, we start thinking about them intensely and we go over it and over it and over it. And as we do, we discover that our lives begin to change because God takes that and uses that as a means for changing us. Now, how does that, how does that change really happen? Well, remember, one of the things, one of the things that we see in coming to faith is expressing repentance. And remember, the basic meaning of the word repent is to change our mind, and to change our mind leads to a change of behaviors. And what we're going to talk about next week, particularly in a social context, is that one of the important things is our mind is very much like an iceberg. And what's above the waterline, our ideas, our perceptions, our thoughts, are all based on some basic assumptions that we hold, the things that we never give any thought to. And we're going to talk about how do we learn to change those basic assumptions. The Bible says there's some things we need to know. Then we need to consider and count those things as true in our experience. And then having done that, we are to yield our bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. That's what sanctification is all about. But we'll have to wait till our next session to talk about that in detail. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy. Thank you that nothing ever takes you by surprise, even though it takes us by surprise. Thank you that in your plan that from eternity you have decided that you're going to make your people like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for your willingness, for your determination. Yes, your determination to do that in spite of the fact that so often we are a stiff-necked people. Help us, Lord. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.